You can open up your Bibles to James chapter 1. As we read, I want you to consider, consider a question. Uh, trials and trouble give you an opportunity to do something. What two things do trials and troubles give you the opportunity to do? What are the, maybe I'll give it away, two responses you can have to trials and troubles? I'm going to read, actually, James 1, verse 2. And then 2 and 3 and 4, and then I'm going to jump down to James 1, uh, uh, 12 uh, through the end. So I'm just going to kind of skip the middle here. Ready? James 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance. And let perseverance have its perfect work, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in Nothing. And then jump down to verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. But, verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully matured, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Trial, trouble comes to you. What are your options for how you can respond? Uh, response number one. Anybody got it? Consider it joy. Consider it joy, Addie. You raised your hand and everything, everything they teach you in school, even though you don't go to school, and yet you were bested by another homeschooler. Sorry about that. Uh, you consider it all joy. Addie, what's the second response? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. No, that's not, that's not a response, but that's a good thought. Any, any, other, any other ideas of the other way you can respond to trials or troubles? Persevere. Persevere. I would consider that counting it all joy. Yes, yes. Sin. Sin. You can, there you go. Whew. CC pulled through for me. All right. You can choose to respond two different ways to the same problem. You can respond with joy in what God is probably up to. You can respond in joy saying, my God is up to something good to purify me, to sanctify me. Or you can respond in doubt and unbelief and distrust and say, I'm not going to follow God. I'm going to respond in sin. That's how you can respond. You have those two opportunities to trials. Trials, in other words, give your faith an opportunity to shine, to show itself. It shows you, that's what trials do. Trials show you what you think about God. 
And what kind of thoughts have not just entered your cerebral space, but also have entered your heart and entered your practice? Trials show you who you are. And you have a choice in response to trials. Once again, a a choice to rejoice in faith is a choice of humility. It's a choice of dependence. It's a choice of faith. It's a choice of future vision, right? Humility, we, we, we see that in, in how James talks about the brother of a humble circumstances has joy because of his humble circumstances. A brother, in verse 10, of rich circumstances rejoices in his earthly poverty, his earthly weakness, right? Humility is what gives you joy, how you respond to trouble. And also we see uh, prayer. Prayer is a right response, but that's a response of what? Humility, dependence. I need God more than anything else. That is why I pray. Now, just to remind us where we're at with uh, our summary and our outline, let's just go through it really quick. Are you ready? Are you ready? Why should you rejoice in trial? Because, ready? Trials strengthen your faith. But only if you pray to God for what? This is interactive now. Uh, Wisdom. All right. Because wisdom helps you what? Think eternally. Right? Right? The people who think eternally look forward to the crown. And the people who think eternally, the people who have wisdom, what do they say when trials and troubles and testing and temptation come? They say temptation comes from where? From your heart. And our next section is going to be this. It's just going to be this. Ready? Trust everything that comes from God. Trust everything that comes from God. This is our our kind of walkthrough of the whole entire section here. But once again, just to say it uh, real quick, right? Why, Why should you rejoice in trials? Because trials strengthen your faith, but only if you pray to God for wisdom. True wisdom thinks eternally. True wisdom, what did I say? Yeah, uh, true wisdom uh, sees, looks forward to the crown. True wisdom knows the source of temptation is from within. And true wisdom trusts everything that comes from God. Now, the part about trusting everything that comes from God is from verses 17 and 18. And we're not going to really talk about that, but I'm going to hint at it. I don't quite want to get into verse 17 and 18 just yet. I want to talk one more week about verses 13 through 15. I want to take one more pass through this section on temptation before we get to trusting everything that comes from God. And there's a reason for this. And it was intentional on my part last week, but I really left last week wanting to tell you more. And I know you're shocked, right? Pastor David wanted to tell me more, really? I'm just like, please, preach to me more, right? Uh, No, there was a whole other sermon that I wanted to preach on the passage that I didn't preach last week. So we're going to go through it again, and I'm going to, it's going to be a different sermon, don't worry. I, we, I, want to, I want to tease out to you a treasure that is buried in this passage. There is a treasure here in verses 13 through 15. This isn't bad news. This is actually incredibly good news. There is a treasure of truth for how you can defeat and conquer temptation in your life. And I don't want to pass by it. So, 
We're going to run over the passage again, and we're going to look for this, these, these truths, these truths that show us how we triumph over temptation. So let's look at uh, number one, the first truth uh, for our triumph, the first truth for our triumph. These are going to be kind of longer statements, and I'll repeat them carefully, but this is the first truth for your triumph. You prove yourself a possessor of eternal life by perseverance. You prove yourself a possessor of eternal life by perseverance. You demonstrate that this belongs to you by your perseverance. You show that you have eternal life living and dwelling in you. That you know the eternal God, as it says in John 17, by your perseverance. Verse 12 kind of suggests this, doesn't it? You, you prove the spiritual truth about you, not when everything is great, but when things are difficult. You are approved in those moments. You are demonstrating that eternal life is yours, that this crown is yours. That it belongs to you. Remember, a crown of life, crown of eternal life, isn't just a higher level of heaven. This is talking about eternal life that anyone possesses, right? It is a crown, a reward. This is eternal life that comes to us through Jesus Christ. This is everything. But, but notice, but be careful here, what James is saying in verse 12 is not saying that we earn eternal life. He's not saying that, that, he's not saying that at all, I don't think. He is saying we, we demonstrate, we demonstrate that true and saving faith is ours when we persevere. And perseverance has this reward of eternal life. And I say that because James is not seeking to correct Paul. James is actually agreeing with Paul. Matter of fact, I've heard it said that Paul, uh, or sorry, James wants believers who believe like Paul. And, and Paul is looking for uh, believers who live like James. So they're, they're not in conflict. They're both after the same thing. James is talking about the fruit of faith, and Paul is talking about the root of faith. We'll talk about that in a little while. But notice, what does it say about eternal life and good works in Paul? Paul says in Ephesians 2, and this is the same Bible, he says we are not saved by our works. We don't earn our way to heaven. You don't possess the crown of life through all of your good works. It's not a reward for your good works. We are saved, though, for good works. You can see this in Ephesians 2. It says this, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. By grace we have been saved through faith, and this not of ourselves. It, faith, is a gift of God, not of works, so that no man may boast. And then in, in Ephesians 2, 10, very close to that same verse, Paul also says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You're not saved by works, but you're saved for works, Right? And I'm going to say that's what James is saying here. This person demonstrates to be the real, true, authentic Christian who possesses eternal life. Good works, including perseverance, then prove the genuineness of your faith. You want to know if your faith is real, if it's genuine? Look at it when the heat is on, when the trials begin. But what does it mean to persevere? What does it mean to 
uh, as the word says, remain steadfast in the faith. Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean, and I'll tell you what it does mean. It doesn't mean that you suddenly come to the place in your life where you no longer feel pain. It doesn't mean that you no longer have any weaknesses in your life. It doesn't mean that you'll never face a circumstance that you can't handle on your own, in your own strength. And I say that, like I said last week, from uh, 2 Corinthians, where Paul is saying, uh, in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8, he said, We had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would have no confidence in ourselves but in God who raises from the dead. Paul himself said there were circumstances that I faced, super Paul, that I could not handle in myself so that my confidence wouldn't be in me. But, but persevering, persevering isn't just about never having any difficult circumstance that you can't handle. Perseverance means in any given circumstance, regardless of how difficult it is, you never respond to that circumstance in sin. That's what perseverance means. I don't respond to my circumstances with sin. Now, that might be encouraging to you. That might be really discouraging to you, right? I respond all the time to my circumstances with sin. It's one of my favorite responses. Sin. It's easy. Feels good. Now, ultimately, the, the greatest way you can respond negatively to your circumstances to renounce Christ, that's ultimately what uh, not perseverancing is. But, but this is all I want to say here for the moment. Just hang on to this for a moment. When you persevere, you simply remain steadfast in your trust in Christ. And as you grow as a believer, you sin less and less in response to those difficult circumstances. You rather hold to your faith in Christ rather than abandoning your faith in Christ in a retreat to a sinful response. That's what it means to persevere. I'm not also saying that you'll be perfect in this in this life. Because, once again, the Bible tells us there will never be a day in this life where we will be perfect, free of sin. But your perseverance will grow, and you will grow, and you will grow, and you will respond to difficult circumstances with less sin through God's grace. Now, now if you're saying, I just don't, I, I just don't think that's possible. Once again, I, I know myself. My favorite response is sin. My favorite response, maybe, maybe people can't see it on the outside, but my favorite response on the inside is sin. It's looking at people and judging them in my heart. It's, it's lashing out in my head against people that don't understand me. My favorite response is to point the finger at other people and accuse them of wrong. My favorite response is sin. I don't think that is possible. I don't have the ability in myself to not sin. Hang on to that thought for a second. Let's move to our, our second truth. We'll get back to that in a minute. Let's get to our second truth for our triumph that we see in this passage. Second truth, you can persevere against sinful responses by learning to mortify sinful desires. You can persevere against sinful responses by learning to mortify sinful desires. You can grow 
in your perseverance. You can become stronger in your perseverance. You can be a different person next year than you are right now. Remember, remember the chain of sin that we saw, especially in verse 14. Remember that chain? Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully matured, it brings forth what? Death, right? There is this link between desire and sin and death and its end, right? And notice this, this is very important, right? In verse 13 we saw, let no one say when he is being tempted, I am being tempted by God. Let no one say, God put me here in this circumstance, therefore it's his fault. Why? Because God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. Temptation is not ever to be blamed on God, in other words. Temptation is never to be blamed on your circumstances. Temptation is never to be blamed on the people around you. You are to blame your temptation all the way back to your heart. That's what James is saying. But notice the chain of certainty. Once again, sinful desires seem to always find a way out. You feel that? Amen? Things I allow to remain and dwell on in my heart always find a way out. I I know when I'm about to sin because I see it in preview form in my heart and in my desires. I see my sin the day before it happens. Right? Uh, Sinful desires seem to always find their way out there. They're linked. Uh, They will will always bring about their end. They're always seeking the same thing. They're seeking sin. They're seeking actions of sin. Thoughts of sin. Deeds of sin. And they're ultimately aiming at your death. And there's a a link to this. There's, There's a causality to this, right? Sinful desires will produce this. Just like conception produces birth and life, right? There's, there's a link to this. Sin, in other words, is inevitable if you have unchecked, unblocked, unhindered desires in your heart for sin. You will sin. It will be impossible for you not to sin with your hand if you dwell on sin in your heart. That is what James is telling us. There is, a, there is a link. There is a certainty. You know how that kind of argument works, right? There's a certainty. If I leave tuna in my backyard, they'll have cat poop the next morning in my backyard. There is a certainty of it, right? There, there is a certainty if I put gas into my gas can and into my car because it's cheaper, I will soon be paying much, much more for gas because I'm paying for a new engine, right? There's a certainty of this. There's, there's a certainty if you leave your bike in a bad neighborhood, you won't have that bike anymore. It's pretty easy, right? There, there's a certainty if you tip over the first domino, the last domino will also tip. There is a certainty, right? If I'm seeking to start a campfire with TNT, I will soon be dead. All jokes aside, there is a a certain link 
And this is what James wants you to see, too, right? He wants you to see this. He says, there is a link between what you desire and what you do. You will always see your desires on your sleeve, in other words. You will always see what you want in your actions and in your deeds. But I think this is also where you find an incredible truth for triumphing over sin. And this is one of these truths that I don't want you to miss So we have to go back through this again. This is a, you could write this down in your notes as a life-changing truth, if you think about it. This is a life-changing truth. What is that truth? If, If you can learn to attack your sin at a desire level, at a heart level, you can triumph Against sin. You can respond differently to your circumstances when you can start attacking your desires that undergird your sin. Do you see that, right? That's where your sin starts, in what you want. The one who is dead to sinful Desires is freed, in other words, from sin. If you can kill your sinful desires, if you can knock them while they're down, if you can weaken them, you can experience continued, increasing victory in your life against sin. Because that's how sin works. Sin doesn't just happen to you. You're not just a victim of your circumstances. No, praise God, you are the cause of your sin. Because the grace of God doesn't give you much help for other people in your life, but it does give you a lot of help for you. That is a great thought. What does it look like, though, to attack sin? What does it look like to be at war with your sinful desires. What does it mean to, as the Puritans would say, seek to mortify your sinful desires from within? Mortify, by the way, is a fancy word that I use a lot. It means to subdue. It means to deaden. It means to destroy the strength, the vitality, the function of that desire. That's what it means to mortify something. You are continually putting it to death, weakening it, cutting off the fuel source. What does the mortification of sinful desire look like? Let me just paint you a a quick little outline, and then I hope you can talk about it in small group a little bit about what this looks like, maybe in your life. What does it look like to mortify a sinful desire? These words are going to be very familiar to you. Number one, you put off the sinful desire. Now, we're going to talk about what this means. Was putting off, you have to put off attitudes and you have to put off actions all at once, but we're talking about it more in an attitude level. But what does it mean to put off a sinful desire? It means, first off, first and foremost, you no longer welcome that desire as friendly. You no longer say, you can be at home here. Suddenly, your desires go from being a welcomed roommate to a robber inside of you seeking to steal, kill, and destroy you. And that is just in the framework of your mind. This is no longer welcome here. 
You, in other words, stand against your desires. You know where they are leading you, and you are at war with them. You are at battle with them because you know where they are wanting to take you. There's this Richard Baxter quote. Why not just go to an old guy for this? Listen to what he says. Use sin as it will use you. Spare it not, for it will not spare you. It is your murderer and the murderer of the world. Use it, therefore, as a murderer should be used. Kill it before it kills you. And then, though it kill your body, it shall not abide to kill your souls. And though it bring you to the grave as it did your head, it shall not be able to keep you there. If the thoughts of death and the grave and rottenness are not pleasant to you, do not let the thought of sin be pleasant to you. Listen to every temptation to sin as you would listen to a temptation to self-murder. And as you would do if the devil himself brought you a knife and tempted you to cut your throat with it, so do when he offers you the bait of sin. In other words, when desire comes, use the imagination of your faith to take you to the end of your desire and say, you are seeking to destroy me and I'm going to treat you accordingly. Look to James 1.13. I know where you are going. I'm going to listen to you as I would listen to a murderer. I'm going to listen to you as I would listen to the devil handing me a knife to cut my own throat. That's what Baxter is saying. Treat it as an enemy. But also you should put it off in your actions as well. And I would say this to you, right? Uh, Sinful desires find great protection in sinful contexts. If you continue to hang out in the same places that uh, cause these sinful desires to come out of you, you will never see the end of these sinful desires. You need to put away, perhaps, certain things. You need to put off certain actions. You need to put off certain attitudes. You need to intentionally pray against your sin, and you need to fast and ask God to reveal your sin to you at deeper levels. You should have a a quick, uh, prepared uh, response to your desires when they come. No, I am not going to do this. I love God too much. You put off the desires. You see the end of the desires. And you flee from those desires. You reveal the truth of those desires. But also, you must also put on new desires, right? It's no good. It's no good cleaning a house, cleaning a house just to leave it empty. It will fill up with all sorts of junk again. You need to intentionally, purposely put new things in it. It's no good to just wash your clothes and then hang them up in your closet. You need to put yourself and your good-smelling self into it. Now, that's a weird illustration. (laughs) But you can be sure that empty spaces will sure be filled by sin and sinful desires. You need to fill your heart and mind with the truth of God's word. You need to fix your mind and your heart on the good things of God and his way. You need to train yourself to love the ways of God 
and hate the ways of sin. Once again, godly desires will die if they are trying to live in ungodly atmospheres. It's hard to stop lusting if you're currently looking, right? Live a separated life. Live a separated life. Maybe cut things off, but cut them off so that you can grow in what you are loving, in what you are leaping towards, what you're longing for, right? Give yourself space, perhaps, from sin, like lustful images, in order that your heart and your mind can grow in love and trust in God. Find new places, find new spaces, find new retreats, uh, routines, develop new godly habits, but you have to replace old things with new things, and desires Desires need new contexts as well. But I'll, I'll say one more thing about how to mortify sinful desires. Not only put off, but also put on. But I would also say pour on. Pour on is a military term, which means you keep firing your weapons at the enemy to keep them pinned down, right? You've seen the World War II movie, right? Pour it on them. Pour it on them. Keep firing so that they never come out of that foxhole again, Successful mortification demands that you never just rely on the mountaintop experiences of life, but you pour it on them in the peaceful times. You kick your adversary when it is down, and you keep kicking it so it stays down. Sinful desires need to be continually mortified, right? I could, I could give you illustrations, right? Many a war has been lost by a general who, in winning a battle, stopped pursuing the enemy and lost the war. That's how wars are lost all the time. I'll just give a little tappy-tap to the brakes right now. We got them on the runs. We've got them beat. No, you've got to pour it on them. And this is what we see in the attitudes of the saints in the Bible. For example, a picture of the Christian life that we see in Paul in Philippians 4.12, we don't see him sitting back. We don't see him lazy. We don't see him saying, well, I've, I've arrived pretty far. I think I'm good now. No, look at his attitude. He says this in 3.12 of Philippians, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers, I do not consider myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are perfect, mature, think this way. That is how a believer thinks. I want to hate my sin more. I want to love Christ more. I want to put these things away, and I want to limit limit the areas where these things will be brought up from me because I want to grow. That's truth for our triumph number two, if you're wondering, right? Okay, let's look at our, our third and final truth for our triumph. Uh, or the first truth, if you remember, right? The, the crown of eternal life is, is proven to be possessed by those who persevere. The, the second truth is your perseverance 
comes by learning how to mortify. And third, the third truth for your triumph tonight is this. You have the power to mortify sinful desires because of the Holy Spirit. You have the power to mortify sinful desires in your life because of the Holy Spirit. I would say to you, James 1, 13 through 15, is actually a real blessing in your life. And, and if you come away from James 1, uh, 13 through 15, with the right response, it will be a tremendous blessing in your life. For example, if, if you are lost at sea, floating, and all you have to hold on to is a piece of driftwood, and, and I come to you with a boat, with a boat full of supplies, and all of the things that you are going to need to survive, I cannot help you easily if you first do not recognize your terrible situation. If you're first in denial saying, it's not that bad, I kind of like this wood, but it gives me a little wood chip, but I kind of like it. I think I can swim to the shore. You, you just carry on, boat. If you do not see how terrible your situation is, the good news will not be of much help to you. This is what James 1 kind of does. It, it's, it's a grace meant to humble you about yourself. It's a grace meant to shock you about yourself and about your danger so that you will not depend on yourself, so that you will not trust in yourself, so that you will not be confident in yourself, so that you won't just say, hey, I can, I can handle it on my own. I can beat up my sin on my own. No, James 1 is meant to make you feel defeated. I will be tempted. There's nothing I can do. That's what James 1 is meant to do. It's, it's meant to kind of function a little bit like Paul speaks of in, in Romans 7, verse 24, where he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Right? It's meant to make you feel helpless. But it's not meant to leave you in your wretchedness at the same time. It's meant to make you helpless. So why? So that you go to the God who gives you every good gift. Do you see that in verse 17? Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, right? It's not from in you. It's not from your strength. It's not from your ability. No, you need something that God gives. You need help against your temptation and your sinful desires, and you cannot beat your sinful desires on their own. And you have to confess that, right? I am wretched. But you also need to believe, 1, 17 through 18, right? That God gives every gift necessary to you. We could look up 2 Peter 1, right? God gives us everything we need for life and for godliness. That's what you need to believe. You confess your limitedness and you believe in God's ability, God's strength. But then you got to connect something in your mind. And and just a second here, let me just let me just do a, like a broad connection here. Once again, James 
James is not disagreeing with Paul about salvation. James is agreeing, confirming, showing what the Christian life really looks like. But there's something very important that we need to see and understand from Paul in order to to really understand what every good and every perfect gift from God really means. What do we get from God? To defeat and to destroy and to mortify sinful desires. What good and perfect gift that is straight do we find from God Turn over in your Bibles to Romans Romans 6. Romans 6 tells you that you are freed from the bondage of sin and death, and sin is no longer your master. That's what Romans 6 tells you. Because of the death and resurrection of Christ, you are freed from the bondage of sin. Sin is no longer your master. Romans 6, 15 says, 6, 11, consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God, right? We, we are freed from the bondage of sin. You can look over for a summary of Romans 6. Actually, in Romans 7, verse 4, it says this, So, my brothers, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that you might bear fruit for God. Or look at Romans six eighteen. We have been freed from sin, and we have become slaves of righteousness. This is what Romans 6 is all about, right? You are freed from the bondage of sin. In Romans 7, Romans 7 says, by the way, it doesn't present the Christian's current struggle. I'm not convinced by that argument at all anymore. It actually presents the struggle of an Old Testament uh, saint in their own resources, in their own strength. It's, It's presenting a Christian, or sorry, an Old Testament saint who doesn't have the blessings and the promises of the new covenant like you have. It's, it's presenting them in this kind of character way. Paul is saying it was a wretched existence to be without the new covenant. And you get this sense from actually Romans 7 verse 5. Well, we were in the flesh. Flesh, of course, referring to our weakness, our human weakness, apart from the new covenant. Well, we were in the flesh. The sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. That is all that we saw. And that's all you see in Romans 7. We are unable, weak, in agony. And in the flesh, we are alone. And that goes to Romans 8. Romans 8 just simply paints the dramatic picture of the new kind of life that we now live in Christ Jesus. It is not like the life that the old covenant saint lived. We have a new dramatic contrast we, for one, have a hope of no condemnation, Romans 8.1 tells us. And notice this, in Romans 8, we have power and ability to attack the desires, the sinful desires of our sin. 
Notice Romans 8.13, right? If you are living by the flesh, or to, according to the flesh, you must die. You are unable to fight the sin. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the practices of the body, you will live. Or to jump back to chapter 7, actually, I think 7-6 summarizes chapter 8, believe it or not. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were constrained, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Romans 7 paints a picture of a spiritless life. Romans 8 paints a picture of you, through the Spirit, defeating sin and having blessed assurance through it. By the way, by the way, what, what does it tell you? What does it tell you when, when you defeat sin and fight through the Spirit? It tells you that you are a son of God and you have great and wondrous assurance. Now notice this. The Spirit doesn't remove your responsibility, but the Spirit, see this in Romans 8.13, it gives you the ability to actually make war against your sin. Verse 13, if you by the Spirit are putting to death the deeds and the practices of the body, you will live. Rejoice in that. Rejoice in that. You are not left alone to prove your faith. You are not left alone to persevere. You are not left alone in your trials. In fact, God sends you trials in order to what? Not prove your sufficiency in yourself, but prove your sufficiency in Him. God sends you trials. To show the great strength of his spirit at work in you. Trials prove the presence of the spirit of God in you, as it says in Romans 8. Trials are there to show that you are sons and daughters of God, in fact. And to show your true blessedness. That's what trials show you. One final life-changing truth that I think we should take away from James. And here it is. Because of the gospel and the spirit of God that comes through the gospel, because of the gospel and the indwelling work of the spirit, the empowering work of the spirit, because of the gospel, young ones, you do not have to be enslaved your sinful desires anymore. You do not have to be enslaved to sinful responses to trials and troubles. You can look at your trials and troubles and plead with God for strength and power to respond rightly. And he will give you sufficient grace. But trials aren't supposed to make you look great. Trials are supposed to make your God look great and strong inside of you. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this evening, and we pray that you would bless us through your word, and we would help us to intake its truth and let it sink deep into us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.